This is Alex Strand with the CBH Podcast. Welcome back again for the second half of the Starenko experience. So did you put a lot of ideas for Super Agent X, Spy-Man into that Nick Fury, Strange Tales run? No, I took Marvel's lead and uh, went into another direction. For one thing, those were superhero strips. Yeah. And what I decided to do was kind of follow up on something that Kirby and Lee had developed, but they didn't know what to do with. Remember, Kirby did the first S.H.I.E.L.D. half-book story. Yeah. And then he moved on to other things. And then John Severin or something. S.H.I.E.L.D. was originally called The Man Called Death. D-E-A-T-H. But that was too harsh, too stark for comic readers, they felt. And so they changed Death to another anagram, S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. You know, which was a smart move. Yeah, that's a good move. And they imported Howling Commandos, Nick Fury. Smart. But nobody knew what to do with it. It went from one artist to another. Johnny Severin, great artist, you know, tried to do what he could. Nobody knew what to do with it. Finally, it got down to like, I don't know, Werner Roth or something. I mean, it was awful. I think he was trying to take a stab at it. It was truly pathetic. Okay. I believe when I took over, Fury was fighting druids in England. (laughs) I could be wrong about that. It could have been even worse, but... (laughs) I mean, they just didn't know what to do. Right, right. Isn't it obvious? Fury had to compete with all these other cool superheroes. Yeah. And I figured the way to make him do it was to create super technology. Right. That would put him on a par, a fighting par. Yes. With the rest of those sons of bitches. Okay. (laughs) I could also do a number of things. I could also make him comic books... 007. Yeah, right. That was important. Especially in the 60s, yeah. So, I think Kirby and Lee made a terminal mistake by taking Foxhole Nick Fury and making him the supreme commander of Secret Service spy forces in America. Right. So, literally, I shaved him on panel. I took away that. Oh, yeah, you did. That's right. That's right. From day one. Okay. I took away those stogies, you know, they were smoking down to like an inch and a half, you know, and gave him, you know, some real cool Havana cigarettes. Yeah. Along the way. You made him cool. I gave him my tailor. I took him to my tailor. And even in one scene, I even gave him my apartment Mm. one night. Mm -hmm. So I revised Fury to bring him up to date and make him compete with the rest of the characters in the Marvel line. Right. This, this is what I was thinking of. And skin-tight outfits and all that, right? I put him in a zip suit, black leathers, so uh, he'd have a similar look to those guys, and I literally dressed him up in weaponry. Everything he was wearing was just about a weapon. He's a human weapon anyway. I yeah, mean, right. Know. I'll tell you something you didn't know about Fury. You wouldn't like him. He's not the kind of a guy you'd want to go out drinking with at night because... You wouldn't come back. Fury is not a particularly nice guy. He's just the world's most dangerous man. I mean, he's like Danny Trejo on speed. (laughs) You know? He's just that. But he's not a likable guy. Yeah. He's just very, very capable. Yeah, he's very capable. When he says he's going to do something, it's a fait accompli. That's true. It's over. It's over. So I began to develop 
a whole series of technological miracles for him to tinker around with and tried to match it with my visuals, ultimately developing things like the maze page, where if you wanted to go from act one to act two, you actually had as a reader to go through a maze to get to the next page. Right. Or you'd be stuck there. That's all you had to do. You actually had to go through the maze. I figured I could do this on every other page. I could create a million dollar set. That's how I competed with James Bond. That's right. Eat your heart out, Cubby Broccoli. <laughs> yeah, because his loft, his fashion, everything was just a whole nother level when you took that character on. Did you feel yourself growing as a comic artist during that run? Or did you just get more brave with what you felt like doing? And I've also heard that you also encouraged Stan Lee to then let other artists also start kind of doing their own thing and not stick so close to the Kirby aesthetic as well because he liked your outcomes. Not really. Those sons of bitches can fight their own battles. I'll fight mine. What did happen is when I got there, Stan's ruling for everybody, not only me, everybody, Mm -hmm. draw it like Kirby. Right. That's the house style. Draw it like Kirby. Hey, look, do you know the quintessential insult to an artist? Don't draw it like your vision. Copy somebody else's work. Stan didn't mean it maliciously. Right. You know, he was just saying, this is our house style. You know, that's what he had in mind. It was a commercial thing. But I didn't like that. And I'm no Kirby. Kirby's the world's greatest comic artist. There's only one Kirby. I couldn't even pretend to be Kirby. Couldn't do it. I bring other skills, other strengths into my work that are different from those that Jack Kirby brings into his work. Right. And so I made a thing of them. Initially in the Shield strips, I brought my design sensibilities. I brought my compositional strengths. I brought my layout skills. I brought my storytelling, my narrative chops, taught by the world's greatest film directors uh, into it. I brought other things too. I was still working. I still had two other full-time jobs. I was playing four or five nights a week, Mm -hmm. playing rock and roll. Right. And holding down an eight to five job. And what about Peter Max, Andy Warhol? Do you feel like you put that stuff into it? Not really. They were doing, Warhol was copying comic panels. Right. And blowing them up and making yeah, them true. fine art. That's true. There was nothing for me to copy. That's right, because he's copying there. comics, yeah. Except there were times when I brought a pop art quality into the work. And I can't tell you something that I never told Stan because I know he'd hit the roof. I worked on three separate levels. The most basic level was for kids who were maybe five years old, couldn't read. They could understand my stories just by looking at the pictures. I always had that foremost in mind as I drew my stories, that there was something they could understand. Maybe not all the subtleties, if there were any subtleties, but the nuances of the stories they could still know who the good guys and the bad guys were, and they could follow the story. Got it? Yeah. And then I did another level for this yeah. young Marvel comic reader, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, mm. who were the basis of the comic book market, and they read it on that particular level, a kind of straight action, thriller, suspense kind of a level, standard comic book stuff. And then on top of that, I wrote for the college level. I'd often create scenarios, characters, scenes, dialogue that would be so over the top, it would be satirical. 
I mean, you couldn't help laughing if you really thought about it. So I was working on the three separate levels, trying to find three different audiences simultaneously. And it must have worked because eventually, instead of splitting strange tales with another character, you know, and doing the 12-page stories, Stan called me up one day. And it doesn't happen often in the lives of comic book artists and actors, too, for that matter. Sometimes actors work for five, eight, 10, 15 years but working behind the scenes, they're doing one line, you know, dialogue in a commercial or a TV series or something. You know, I mean, they've been there, they're, they're building sets. And every so often, I get a call from their agent saying, hey, kid, I just signed you to star in a film. Mm. You've got the lead. You're going to be a star. <laughs> and that's just about what Stan Lee said when he called me up and said, hey, kid, you got your own book. That's awesome. You're going to be a star. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was doing something right. Did you enjoy working with Stan during those years? I enjoyed working with all of the guys up there. They were my heroes. Yeah. They were my heroes, my childhood heroes. And many of them were really special to me. Frankie Giacoya and Joe Sinnott. Yeah. Yeah. I say that they took my really crude, in the words of Stanley, my really crude amateurs drawings and turned them into professional material with mm-hmm. their inking because mm-hmm. they were such great artists i think joe sinnott put me on the map you feel like the way murphy anderson did for carmine you feel like joe sinnott did something similar on your pencils no carmine was already there he was already a skilled i see what you're saying uh, technician but frankie stuff. g and uh, and joe sinnott added a new dimension to the work that wasn't there they made it look professional right i wasn't ready quite yet to get there but they added the extra element that really worked you don't know how much i fought to get those guys to ink my work they were, oh, really? they were marvel's top inkers and to get them to ink the books i had to do a lot of fighting i see i'm not getting a lot of fighting to get onto my book and my schedule. They were essentially scheduled for the top books, for Thor and FF and the big selling books. But along the way, I found a few kinks to make it happen. I had a great rapport with Stan. We lost Stan this week. Stan is a very congenial guy. The guy that you see on those interviews on TV shows and on his cameos, that's really him. Right. He's that way all the time. He's a very charming guy. On the other hand, I'm a very confrontational guy. And as soon as I sense anything going wrong in my world, I don't care who you are. I'll be in your face in a moment about it because I'm prepared to fight for what I believe in. The only thing I regret at this moment would stand a lot of confrontations along the way. And some of them weren't very pretty. But I'll stand by my philosophy. It's like this. Marvel, like all other comic book companies, they pay for words on paper. They pay for lines on paper. But unlike every successful company in the world, they do not pay for ideas. You know how GE stays on top? You know how Apple stays on top? They have a whole team of guys that they hire just for ideas. Right. They keep their product competitive by thinking of new and exciting developments all the time. But comics don't. I only ever did 29 books for Marvel. Maybe not even for Marvel, but 29 comic books in my life. That number is significant, by the way. Do you know that number? Do you know that number? 29? you know what that is? You know the great blues guitarist at the crossroads? Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson. He sold his soul to the devil. 
at the crossroads. Don't you know that story? But I don't know very much about it. Okay. Well, it's a very famous story. And he recorded 29 songs. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's the only yeah. difference between Robert Johnson and me is that I sold my soul to Stan Lee. Simple as that. Right. There were two Canadian professors that mounted a show of my work years ago. Maybe it was in the 70s or mid-70s or maybe the 80s, but I think it was maybe in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Winnipeg Museum and Art Gallery. And the show was massive. They actually built a wall. They built a wall in the museum to house some of my work. That's great. In the course of our interviews, these guys are very savvy. They said, do you know that you created 76 things that had never been done in comics before? I wasn't aware of that. Oh, really? Okay, so they cataloged the things that you pioneered. They produced a book, a catalog for the show, which was a thick book. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think it's called Graphic Narrative. The title of it is Duranko, Graphic Narrative. Oh, okay. And that really interested me because as a lifelong comic reader, I couldn't think of another artist, even those that were extremely prolific, like Kirby or Kane, for example, or Johnny Severin, that really produce something new. I'm not talking about new kinds of pictures where this character is on the left and this is a close-up. I'm talking about storytelling tropes, devices that are used in narration. In other words, like in films, for example, the lap dissolve where one scene turns into another or a straight cut where one scene, bang, ends and another one begins or a wipe. You know what a wipe is? Yeah. And it transitions. Uh, Spielberg used it in the Raiders movies. Right. And Flash Gordon had that. kind of wipes across the screen. Into a new one. Right. Those are the kind of devices I'm talking about. They're narrative devices. Even knowing Kirby's work, you know, the warrior god of comics, I couldn't find more than, I'm not even sure, two or three. Right. Thinking about this over the years, talking about it here and there to people who really knew the forum who really knew about comics. I uh, met a guy, James Romberger, in New York, who's a writer and an artist, very famous, terrific guy. Do you know what I mean? Works for DC, did some stuff in the Vertigo line. Oh, okay. Very savvy guy. Mm-hmm. He's a teacher in his own right. He said, I counted every page in your 29 books, and I found 200 things that had never been done oh, really? before. And I said... Did you list them? And he said, absolutely. I said, send me the list. I'd like to see them. Because I just don't think this is possible. I looked at his list. I knocked out 50. 50 of them that I had seen before in comics. And I knew that they weren't original. That they weren't those. Yeah, right, right. That left 150. And I'll stand by that 150. You pioneered those. Can I tell you a few of them? Yeah, sure. They range from large to small. Why not? They cover the whole spectrum. In one of my comic books, I had an actress who was doing a scene with her leading man. And if you've spent any time around film sets, you know that what you see on screen and what happens in real life could be two entirely different. There's an enormous amount of jealousy and hatred that goes on in movie sets. Regardless of those people that sit around in chairs doing promos, if you only you really knew... So anyway, I tried to convey this idea 
without actually stating over a three-page scene, right? It was in nuance. And so I gave my female actress a balloon in a scene, and the balloon was empty. You know how women are? Did you ever get the silent treatment from a woman? Yeah, sure. Well, then you know the silent balloon. Never been done in comics before. That's pretty cool. To make it even cooler, I drew a couple of bicycles underneath it. There you go. That's nice. <laughs> That's good storytelling. So you see, they range from very small. Yeah. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one of the biggest ones. I think I was the first in comics to do a nine-month story, a story that lasted nine months, The Yellow Cloth. Yeah, that was a great one. It lasted almost a year. Mm-hmm. Never been done in comics mm-hmm. before. And I'm kind of grooving along. You know, month after month, telling this story. And I'm getting to the end now. This is why I wanted to end it. It went on long enough. I made my statement. And I'm thinking, I've really got to come up with a big finish. Because if you tell a little story, you know, if you write a little story that's like 300 words, you can put a little joke at the end, right? But the bigger the story, the bigger the novel, you know, if you write a 900-page novel, you had better come up with one, one hell, of a good, hell of a good ending. That's right. You will be tarred and feathered if you're lucky. You follow me? Yeah. Well, cut it out. It makes me nervous. So <laughs> here we are at the end of this nine months, and I'm thinking, I've got to really put a cap or climax on this that knocks everybody out. I didn't have an idea. I was ready to move to Guam. I just didn't know. And simultaneous to this, I happened to be watching a James Bond, Ken Adams set. And that's where I got the idea. Something had never been done in comics before. And of course, I wouldn't dare tell it to Stan because anytime I told him anything that I was going to do ahead of time like this. Yeah, he would say no or something. He stopped me. Don't do that. Just do it like Kirby. Right. Just do it like Kirby. So why would I tell him? So you have to turn it in somewhat right before the deadline, and then they have to print it. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I have a kind of reputation for being late with my material. Completely bogus. I was never, ever late. I'm a pro. But this is what happened. When I brought a story in on Monday, it was due on Thursday. It would give them four days to tinker with my work. That's the way it was in my Marvel years. Right. Do I look like the kind of guy that would put up with tinkering with his work? I was talking earlier about every company in the world paying for ideas, except comic book people. I was giving them what I call innovations, things that had never been done in comics before, 150 of them. It never paid me a cent for any of them. Those are major developments. They are being used in comics now. Not all of them, but many of them. I never got paid for them. I should have been paid for them. The treatment of creating something new that had never been done in comic books before, not just hitting my Xerox machine and grinding out the same stuff that I did, you know, over the last month, year, decade, like many artists. I was giving them really new, fresh ideas and not getting paid for it. And then on top of that, I had to fight for it. Wait a minute. I want to be paid for my work. And if I have to fight for it, I want to be paid for fighting too. Is that unreasonable? Right. It makes sense. So Stan and I had these many conflicts. 
Anyway, all said and done, 150 innovations that I gave them. And often, when I used to bring my stories in on time or early, they'd wipe them out. They'd destroy them. They'd change them. They'd reconfigure it. They'd take these things away that they didn't understand. That's painful to create. And having somebody who just is thinking along the old threadbare, you know, traditional ways of doing things that have been done that way thousands of times, but this is the way we do it here. You got it? I worked at the House of Ideas. Don't make me laugh. So when I brought the climax of this nine-page story in, without telling Stan what it was, and I brought it in at the last moment, I brought it in Thursday afternoon, an hour before it had to be sent to the engraver, right? That was, you know how long it took me to figure out bringing my work in at the last moment? That's how I got my reputation for being late. Right. You know how long it took me to figure that out? Maybe four months. Took me about two seconds. Two seconds. (laughs) After I saw they changed my work, that was it. So I brought the climactic scene to the Yellow Claw saga in at the last minute. And the innovation was that I did it over the climactic scene over two double pages, one panoramic scene, one really ass-kicking, spectacular scene. And I laid it out on Stan's desk, and I said, here's the end of the story. And he hit the roof. Oh, my God, Jim, why must you always do this crazy stuff? Why can't you just do it like Ramita? Just do it like Kirby. I said, Stan, you don't get it. And he said, I don't get it. I've been the editor here for like 30 years or whatever it's been, you know, 40. He said, I don't get it. And I said, no, you don't get it. Don't you understand? They have to buy two comic books and put them side by side. That's right. Get all four. Great idea, Jim. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) That sudden turnaround. See, I wasn't talking his language there for a moment. So what I'm saying is that my innovations range from massive down to like, yeah, random little details. Right, right. You know, along the way. I believe Jim Romberger mentioned this in a book or maybe did it in an article first when talking about the innovations. I think he said that if you took every new idea on a storytelling level that artists contributed, every one of them put together, not only wouldn't they match that 150, my contribution in 29 comics, I think he said you could multiply them 10 and they still might not be there. I think that's my legacy. That is. You're leaving Marvel around 1969, 1970. You're writing your history of comics volumes, and you start your super graphics publications, and you start getting a book deal to paint covers for books. So was one of the reasons why you left Marvel, other than just kind of pushing against the grain and it getting kind of annoying after a while, was because you had so much more going on that you just felt like you wanted to grow in those other directions? That's one way to say it. I figured I had done all I could do for Marvel. You mentioned earlier that Stan would coach his artists by saying, do it like Kirby. I didn't know this until Barry Pearl, who wrote a couple of books about Marvel, kind of really heavily researched. Barry discovered that somewhere along the way during my Marvel tour, Stan began to tell his artists to draw it like Storanko. I never knew that until Barry discovered it when he interviewed various artists from period that was 
kind of after my Marvel tour. So I figured I had made a significant statement at Marvel. I do a lot of things. One of the things I don't like to do is to repeat myself, like being a human Xerox machine and yeah. grind out the same Repeating thing. Repeating the same stuff. They don't do that. And I figured it was time to move on, especially since I was still getting resistance, yeah, the resistance. on an editorial level. And I think I had had about enough. If I hadn't proved myself by that time, I'm not sure I wanted to go on you know, at that particular level. I probably could have had my own way. I think I was the only guy at Marvel to that point writing and drawing his own material. Yeah. Who else did it? Yeah, you no pa- you packaged the whole thing. Yeah. And then I colored my own work too. So I was the only guy maybe ever that did all those three things at Marvel. I certainly had a lot of autonomy, but I was still not at a place where I could experiment to the level that I wanted to. And maybe Stan was correct in not allowing me to do that because Marvel readers wanted Marvel material. They didn't want experimental Steranko stuff. You know, the the 150 innovations is maybe all they could possibly stand. And I can tell you something. There are still some of those that people don't even know about that haven't yet been discovered, which I think is a pretty wild idea. They're so subtle. They're so nuanced in the stories that people have yet to kind of catch on On the other hand, many of them have been adopted and are being used today by artists who don't even know where they came from. They came from the books during that period, the S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Captain America books that I did. And one other book that we haven't mentioned, and I'll just bring it in because it was my most controversial story. It was in a horror comic book, Tower of Shadows, the yeah, one. Right. And he didn't get the Lovecraft implication in it or something, and that created some I argument. He, called, in, he wanted to call you it change story, name. Let Them Eat Cake. I wanted to call it The Lurking Fear at Shadow House. Mm-hmm. And I think it had another title. I'm not too sure what it was. Mm. And that's when you quit, right? From a conflict over that. Yes, we had an argument about that story. Stan looked at it and he wanted to change things. It was really my most inventive and experimental story. And we got into a altercation and I said to Stan, here's where I stand on this. If you change one word, one, find yourself another artist. And he fired me on the spot. Right. Okay. So he fired you, actually. Okay. I got gotcha. you. fired me. I've never seen Stan man. Have you ever seen Stan angry? No, never of course seen not. Him angry. Uh-uh. That was his moment. We made up, but I no longer did stories for Marvel. His covers. His covers. I do think it was the top cover artist for three or four months. Did you kind of pick and choose which covers you were willing to do? Did you were you experimenting with different genres when you were picking those different covers? Not really. Okay. Not really. I mean, I'd get a call from Saul Brodsky and he'd say, Hey Jim, I got three covers coming up. Can I get them in two weeks? I see. So it's kind of more casual like that. And I took whatever they had. Uh-huh. I thought I could make my point philosophically by changing Marvel's look, adding new, fresh concepts and ideas. I think Stan paid me for a story that you don't know about called Dante's Inferno. I think I saw maybe two pages of it. It was a suspense thriller with a hero. Mm-hmm. And it didn't look Marvel enough, right? Wasn't that the deal? It had no feathering. It was in a style that was fresh to comics. Right, right. Stan, he said, this is not a Marvel story. And I said, am I in the house of ideas? 
Right. And I knew he'd change it drastically. And I said, forget it. They had already paid me for the story. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll just do something else for you. I'm not giving you this story. It's just too good to spoil right. by changing all of these ideas. I said, the ideas have great value. The story may be worthless. But the technique that I use, the narrative technique to get there, I think has enormous value to you. Yeah, I but see. If you don't feel that your readers deserve that, as I created it, I'll just pull the story and I'll do something else for you. And I did another experimental story. The romance comic. Did, yeah, the only romance story I ever Yeah, which did. is beautiful. I love that comic. It was the only story Stan ever wrote for me. Oh, okay. It was our only true collaboration. Nice. He wrote every word in it. We did it Marvel style, but yeah. he actually wrote every word. Didn't give it to Roy Thomas to edit. And, I see. You know, and so forth. My heart broke in Hollywood. My heart be still. That's a beautiful piece. I've looked at that quite a few times. When you started Super Graphics Publications, you use a lot of techniques that you'd learned throughout your advertising years and whatnot. And you use that to make a few things. You use that to make the history of comics, the comic scene which then turned into media scene and then preview. Then you use some similar techniques to make the first foom, the first four foom fanzines. It seemed like stylistically comic scene and foom looked somewhat similar to me when I looked through them. I thought that there was room in the comic book world. Comic book fandom was exploding because of Marvel Age. And most fan publications were really amateurish. I mean, they were run off on little... The machines had names that we can't even think of these days. They were they weren't even Xeroxes. Yeah, mimeograph. Something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. really, really crude duplicators. They wore out the matrix in like thirty copies, which were typed on a piece of wax paper to make copies from. Anyway, the fan world was very amateurish at the time, and I thought I could deliver something really professional, which is why I created Comic Scene. Comic Scene printed on web presses like newspapers and magazine technique. It was a very sophisticated publication. You have no idea the amount of tricks that when they ran them so that I could do things right there on the press that even those pressmen didn't know about. One of my tricks was to create four-color work on a two-color press. Guys said, that's impossible, but I know how to make that work. Mm -hmm. I mean, that saves a lot of money. Yeah, right, it does. When Stan decided to... Make a fancy another Mary Marvel 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 Mania type thing. Yeah, that was the result of many conversations that I had with him. I saw that Marvel was exploding across the cultural world everywhere. And I said, you're sitting on a billion dollar operation. To give you an example, they farmed out their advertising department. All the ads in Marvel Comics were done by a separate company. I said, that company should be in house. That should be a Marvel operation. Why should these guys done it for years benefit from your success? You can control that right here. You should be doing it. You should be controlling your own destiny. That eventually happened. He instituted that. I said, you should be aiming at film and paperbacks. You should be exploring mm. other mediums. And the world is ready. They're going to accept it. And Stan's comment was, Jim, I'm already so overworked. You know, all I can handle is my comic books. Right. And I said, you have to relegate. But Stan is really not so good in doing that kind of thing. I mean, he's great, you know, doing what he does. But on a business level, there's something to be desired. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm not faulting him for that. Few artists, few writers have that ability. But I was kind of laying it out for him. 
Anyway, all of the conversations we had on this level, I think, finally materialized when he decided to bring back the Mary Marvel Marching Society and call it Friends of Old Marvel. Yeah, right. He came up with that name, right? He came up with the name. But because I had been hounding him about this, he said, maybe you could... (laughs) There you go. Maybe you could edit, design, construct the content of this book give it some real persona, you know, here's where you can bring your imagination, your inventive graphic quality into it, because it's a separate entity from the books. And I like that idea a lot. We had dinner one night with Saul Brodsky and me and a guy named Ivan Snyder, who he had brought in to do marketing and We made the agreement and I made it irresistible for Stan and for Marvel because I took no payment. You didn't actually get paid to do those first four films. No. Oh, I didn't know that. I designed the whole kit, the Marvel poster, the whole membership game and every one. Yeah, you did. It was a fun show. Really? So you just did it for fun? No, no. I said to Stan, I want you to pay me, but in a way that will cost you nothing. I said, I want two pages for myself out of every one of these books, two ad pages. There you go. For myself, I do with them whatever I want. And what I want is to promote my own products. Okay, that's cool. That's a good idea. Cost them nothing, right? And when they saw how successful it was because of that, other powers, and it certainly could have been some of those people. I don't really lay this on stand because I he just doesn't think in this direction. But I think somebody at Marvel got very greedy Hey, why should we be giving this stuff away to Steranko when we could do it in-house? You're right. I already created the master plan, so they took it back. I see. I think it lasted something, I could be wrong, 22 issues. They beat the horse to death, you know, as far as it would go, and they couldn't go anymore, and that was it. And it was dead, and bang, the end. Don't you love it when people are so smart, they outsmart themselves? Perfect example of it. <laughs> so what was the creative bug that had you make Red Tide Chandler graphic novel? And would you call it a graphic novel? I call it the first American graphic novel. It's not a fat comic book. What you're seeing on newsstands is fat comic books. That's not graphic novel material. Yeah, let me put it to you another way. How many pages is normal comic? 22 pages or something. 22 pages. Okay, suppose I added... Five more pages and made it 27 pages. Would it suddenly transform from a comic book into a graphic novel? That's a yes or no question. No. Okay, suppose I added 10 pages and made it. Right. There's okay, like a suppose certain. Suppose I added 30 pages. No, yeah, length isn't enough of a definition. It needs like a serious narrative. A it needs like an adult. Book. Yeah, it has to have some adult theme in it. What makes a comic book a comic book? Do you know? There are three things the size, seven by 10 pamphlet. That's a comic book. The second thing, sequential art. Yes. That is page after page of panels and balloons, right? Yeah, balloons, sure. Panels and balloons. Balloon is a comic book device. Mm -hmm. I want you to look up the definition of novel in the dictionary and tell me if it says balloons. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't say balloons. It doesn't say balloons. Yeah, it's true. And the third thing is a holding line around everything. That's a black line that traps the color. Those are the three things. If you take 
one of those elements out. For example, if you take panels out and put photographs in, not a comic book anymore. If you change the size of it, like down to to digest, it becomes a digest, not a comic book. Right. Comic book is seven by ten. I got you. So if you change any of the elements, it becomes something else. Yeah, the name changes. Something else. So the idea of just adding more pages is completely and utterly meaningless. A graphic novel, to qualify as a novel, should have about 50% text, 50% imagery. You get it? Graphic novel. Right. That's about a 50-50 split. I mean, if you want to really create a definition of the mm-hmm. graphic novel, that would help to define it, 50-50 split. I put together Red Tide, create a Red Tide, I split the page into three sections, and a third of it was text and two-thirds was imagery all the way through. And it had chapter breaks, you know, like a real novel, chapter breaks. Right. That's another thing. And the third thing, which you alluded to a moment ago, was content. Complex themes, right. complex characters. Yeah. And particularly if they're adult, we'll get them more into the novel area. But you can also have juvenile novels, you know, if you want. You know, we're talking about some subtleties here. But those are the elements that create a a graphic novel. I created that format specifically to conform to the term graphic novel. Right. You want to hear the story, how it happened? Yeah, yeah. My friend, and he was like family to me, Byron Price. Yeah, right. That's who published it, right? Was producing heavily illustrated books of one kind or another. Right. I knew him from the time he was 16 years old or 17, but I mean, he was just a kid. I met him at one of the New York conventions. He was really sharp, and we spoke the same language. And for years, for decades, he and I have been talking about all these things like graphic novels and really advancements of the comic book form. Mm. When he was in a position of power, he decided to adopt the things that we had been talking about for generations. And he decided to produce a line of illustrative or illustration was in the title. And he had, I believe it was Steve Fabian do the first science fiction book. That may have been the first or second, I'm not really sure. But it was a comic book in digest form with panels and balloons and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we were going out to lunch. I remember it was high winds and we were going to one of our favorite deco diners one that I happen to like a lot, and I like the food there too, but I like the ambiance of the diner. And he began telling me about a new publisher he was working with and a guy named Norman Goldfine that had come in who was very open to new ideas. And I think I had been reading that day or that week a story about Harold Robbins who went to his publisher. He was the most successful author in America. He went to his publisher one day and he said, I got a little idea for a new book. And the publisher said, I'll buy it. And he said, you didn't hear about it yet. He said, well, okay, tell me. He said, I call it The Adventurers. He got I'll buy it. We'll publish it. He said, but, but you don't know anything about it. And he said, well, what else do you have? I really don't have the characters in place yet. I just know I have this great title, The Adventurers. Well, what's it about? No, I, I don't have the vaguest idea, but I do have a great title. You agree? The publisher says, absolutely. Here's an advance, $80,000. Oh, nice. You know, guys, I got a title, $80,000.
After lunch, we went over to, to Norm Goldfein's office. He wanted to introduce me. I said, you know, I think we can really produce not a digest comic book or not a fat comic book, but a real graphic novel. Are you interested? And he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to design a format never been used before. Hmm. But when people see it, they'll really know it is a graphic novel. For one thing, it'll be very cinematic, but it can be read like a novel because it has text and no balloons. And he got very interested. He said, what's the story about? <laughs> well, hell, I just got the idea in a cab ride over there, you know? I really don't know. I don't have that worked out yet. Well, who's in it? Who are the characters? No, I can't tell you who the characters are in it yet. It, you know, it's too early to say it. I'm thinking about this Harold Robbins story that I read, you know, earlier that day. And he said, well, do you have a title? And I said, yeah, I do, Red Tide. Mm. And he said, I love it. <laughs> and I said, is it a deal? He knew about it. He was one of my fans. He was a Marvel fan. He knew my work. You know, it wasn't like I was just... Some schmuck, yeah. Him, you know, and he said, I love it. I'm going to give you an advance right here. He wrote the check out for me. That's great. Right on the spot. That's my Harold Robbins and you used a lot of the blacks, like you were talking about with Frank Robbins and Noel Sickle style. You used a lot of that. I did not. Because it seems like there's like panels that look that way to me when it's in black and white. That's because they looked like images on the screen from the great noir films Hollywood produced from about 1938 up into the mid-50s. I see. Films like Sweet Smell of Success. Photographed by James Wong Howe. I see. Not Frank Robbins. From the movies and the directors. Or Out of the Past, the great Jacques Tourneur film I see. with Kirk Douglas. It's more on the, movie, on the movie spectrum. So those images came from cinematographers such as Woody Bridell. I see what you're saying. Who shot The Killers, I believe. Okay. John Seitz. And from that resource. I, I wanted see. it to look like movie. Like movie or movie. Not like comic. Not like a comic. Not comic strip panel. So it's a different artistic statement and altogether. Even the narrative technique from panel to panel and page to page does not play out like a comic. It has a different feel to it. The feel is cinematic. Right, it That's is. That's where I was going. You're looking at my images saying, you know what? I've been here before. I wanted you to just about hear a Miklos Rosa score as you were reading my book. That was my goal. This is just more of a random question. Why did Media Scene's name change to Preview? And that's around when it started turning to more of a slick magazine, right? What was that transition about? I told you I had this idea initially to create a publication for comic fans called Comic Scene. Right. Comic scene. And we were pretty successful at it. They weren't used to these kind of graphics and higher end stories and, you know, and really penetrating, insightful interviews and great art in big sizes. I could compete with any magazine with my layouts, my design sensibilities. You'd open those early issues. You'd never seen anything quite like it. You know, bam, it was right in your face. It was. So... I felt that after maybe it was like a dozen issues, comic scene, that I was limiting the scope of material. I'm a pop culture guy. I do not live entirely in the world of comics. 
but in the worlds of music, of cinema, literature, architecture, dance. I'm interested in many, many things. So it was a natural for me to bring some of those things into this publication because mm-hmm. I felt that you guys would be interested in reading about some of those things that I know a lot about. And you could know what I know if you read the magazine. So I changed the name to Media Scene, embracing wider areas Different media. of media. Our circulation continued to build. It was pretty successful. And we reached the point where my distributors and we took surveys and you know we tried to find the right market. We did promotion and there were things going on. And I finally got this feedback from the public and from distributors that the word I had coined, media scene, there isn't a word like that. I coined that term. It's a people don't understand it. Is it a medical magazine? And, you know, they just didn't get it. And when I had enough of those comments, I realized that in order to grow, to be successful, I had to take a different tack. And then I called it preview, media scene preview for a while. And then I dropped the media scene and just called it preview, preview. magazine, mm-hmm. which was like previews of coming attractions. So by that time, there's more movie getting at that deeper point. and deeper into uh, Hollywood. Yeah. Into the cinematic world, because the market was bigger, reach more people, influence more people and maybe make more money along the way. That makes sense. That leads me to the next question. 1981, you did Outland, the Sean Connery film graphic adaptation for the Heavy Metal magazine. And in that same year for Hollywood, you designed the Indiana Jones aesthetic all around that same time. So you really went into the Hollywood scene pretty good around 1981 then. I've always been interested in film. You know that. I remember the first time I went to a movie theater. I was just a little kid. And sitting in this huge, dark room with strangers surrounding me. It was one of the most alien things I think I've ever experienced. And seeing this 30-foot-high image running, playing, whatever they were doing, was staggering to a little kid. Big impression it made. Oh, I remember the first movie I ever saw. The Mask of Demetrius, Warner Brothers film. So it had a profound impact on me. I've always been a cinematic guy. A cinematic kind of guy. I see the show up again and again in my work, in my writing, in my my artwork, my painting. I refer back to this sensibility often. When you made the Indiana Jones aesthetic, that imagery, when you look at every Indiana Jones movie and you look at every Indiana Jones cartoon or whatever, or the TV show, it all goes back to that design you put together. That flavor is everything to Indiana Jones. So what fit into the influence of that design? I believe that Lucas and Spielberg were comic book guys. They're from our generation and we spoke the same language. I use that several times, but that's an important thing in my life. If I connect with people that I speak the same language to, I know I'm on the right track. The timing was very early. Stephen and George had developed about 30 pages of material on a beach in Hawaii during vacation. What do great filmmakers do when they're on vacation? Mm. They talk movies. Right, that's true. What else can they do? They came up with this idea because they loved movie serials. They loved adventure films. They loved the comic book 
sensibility. They, they wanted to create something that had all of that magic, that action, that kind of hyper-romance, one magnificent package. Mm-hmm. And they needed somebody to define what it would look like, right. the rules graphically. Right. So they asked me to produce, I think, a half a dozen presentation pieces with various scenes. And George and I had conversations about the content We talked about the 30 pages and sort of where it went. I pulled out six of the best kind of images visually that people would be interested in, in defining the look of Indiana Jones and painted them, sent them off. I remember, I think I had all the paintings done except one. And I had a show that weekend, which I think was down in Atlanta, producing those paintings in one day especially if they had a lot of stuff in them. It's not easy to do one day because that's not a pencil drawing. It's, it takes time it's to do that paint. Stuff. It's photographic to make it look realistic. That's right. That's my style. And I called George's assistant up and I said, would you pass something along to George? I said, I have a show to go to tomorrow. I'll be gone for the weekend, but I can come back and finish this in a couple of days. And she talked to George about it and George said, we'd like it now. So I didn't sleep that day. It's the one in the Inca tombs. That was then one sitting. Oh, wow. When I That's sat incredible. Down, the board was blank. When uh-huh. I got up, the painting was done. <laughs> That's, ins- That's amazing. You know, an hour later. And were you drawing from like pulp influences or was that just out of your imagination? Well, and- you asked me a question, you know, did I research? I already knew all that. Stuff. You already that knew it all. My life. It was I all in your mind anyway. Away. And George and Stephen knew that, you know, I didn't have to study. Studying for it my whole life. Right. It was a natural for me. I remember how cool it was. George and Stephen took the 30 pages of script and my six production paintings over to Paramount. See if Paramount was interested in developing it, and bam, they got the money right away. Wow, that's a whole series of movies from that. Two years later, first rushes came in. You know rushes? That's raw footage. It's not color corrected, no music, no you know dialogue necessarily right. dubbed in later. Just raw footage. I got a call from Carol Teitelman. George's personal assistant. She said, we just got the first rushes today, this morning, looking at all this raw footage, she said, and we were stunned about how much Harrison Ford looks like that guy you painted two years ago, you know, in those paintings. She said, couldn't believe how much it looked like that. That's amazing. So I guess it was a case of I don't know what you call it, you know, deja vu or something, you know. Right. I, you know, happened to hit the nail on the, yeah, you you did. Know, on, on the head. Superman 400, what made you decide to try comics again after kind of being deep into the Hollywood stuff at that point? Julie. Julia Schwartz. Julie also remembered the kindness that he had shown me. Oh, yeah. You know, that very fateful day when I walked in and I was just a kid. And he spent an hour with me, and he said, I might have to call in that favor. <laughs> and I said, sure, what's on your mind? And he said, this milestone issue, Superman 400 coming up, we want to do something special. So we're asking artists who have never drawn Superman before to contribute to issue four. He said, you're on the top of my list. Wow. Because you had a special dedication to him at the end of that, I remember. Very heartfelt. And I said, 
I'll do 10 pages for you on one condition. Whatever you get from me, you use. You get it, you use it. Don't change a single word, not a line, not a word, nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. You have no editorial power on it. You have to guarantee me, even though you're Julie Schwartz, and I'm only a lowly comic book artist and writer, you have to promise me that nothing will happen. He said, Elliot is writing the book. Julie, what did I do to deserve that? What did you say? I said, why did I get that slap in the face? You want to write your own thing? He said, what are you, what are you talking about? I said, I'm a writer. You know, I've written millions of words, published millions of words. I said, you just slapped me in the face. I am a writer. Why would I have somebody else write my work? Oh, Jim, come on. You know, I didn't mean that. Well, I only know what you tell me. And, you know, you want to have somebody else write for me. You know what that would mean? It looked like every other story in the book. You just want to fill 10 pages, whatever it is, with standard stuff. You don't need me to do that. You already got it. I said, look, I know Elliot. I like Elliot. He already had the assignment to write the whole book. I said, well, then where are we? He said, look, I'll give you Elliot's phone number. You guys work it out. I called Elliot up. Elliot, look, I just got this call from Julie and blah, blah. You know, I want to write my own story. Sure. Go ahead and do it. That's all there was to it. That's awesome. And so I delivered a very un-DC-ish story. Unconventional, yes. You never had anything like it before or since. However, I noticed that it shows up in their reprint of DC Greatest Superman or something. I don't know what. Yeah, of course. Something like So somebody must have liked it. Someone liked it, yeah. I said to Julie, I'm going to write and draw the last Superman story that can be told. It's the end, Finney, after the story. I can live with that. So Bram Stoker's Dracula, that was 1992 or so. And you actually did designs for that movie as well, the aesthetic. What led into that experience, design-wise? I've had a fair number of offers from Hollywood over the years to work on feature films. But I'm really careful about who I collaborate with. And I just turned down those that wouldn't be assets to me. You know, I don't particularly like what they produced. They're low-end pictures, or I don't like the content, whatever it is. But I find it very gratifying to work with the best in the business, like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Oliver Stone and Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, sure. Artists. So... I try to keep my Hollywood assignments as pristine as I can. Good productions where I know the people and what they do, I'm already familiar with them, and that I feel I could get along with them. And I get a call from Francis out of the blue. He was familiar with my work, and he felt that Dracula was a project. I might have been the third person hired on that picture really, really early. He said, I think this is something that you'd enjoy doing. He said, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I don't know how you can go wrong working with Francis Ford. Go yeah, right. Again. Those are great filmmakers, this list. The godfather of American film culture. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Any better than that? I don't know. Not that I know of. So he flew me out there, and we worked on it for about seven months, um, all total. Oh, that's produced, a long time. Oh, okay. Produced a series of production paintings. I didn't stay out there for seven months. I came back and, you know, I was back right, right. Work but working on it. 
So it wasn't just one shot one afternoon. I mean, you were actually involved in this movie. Francis would bring me in. Well, because I was in very, very early, I was involved on many, many levels from casting to specific scenes. And I had a lot of ideas. I regaled him with ideas. Nice. Francis is an idea man himself. And we spent entire days together, whole days, full days. I'd just sit in his office and we'd talk. He'd be answering the phone. I'd be privileged to listening to these private conversations that he had. I learned then what a really tactful creator could be like. Because in overhearing these conversations with movie producers and about money and, you know, some of it was so exasperating, I couldn't handle it at that level. But Francis was so good at it. What a pro. I learned a lot working from him. We'd brainstorm ideas constantly and uh, develop scenes and reject them and recreate them and recast them. And, you know, we spent our time just juggling around for a while. And this came really close. I said to Francis, there have been like 150 Dracula films. They're all over the place. Francis's idea was to do the entire Dracula novel. Usually the movies end at like, I don't know, a third into the book. And he wanted to do the whole thing. Know, be, be kind of true to the book. And so did Jim, the writer. That purity interested Francis a lot. And if there's anybody who could do it that way, it would certainly be him. He contributed enormous amounts of material as a writer to the Godfather movies, for example. All of his movies, for that matter. He is maybe first and foremost a writer. So we spent this kind of development time brainstorming. I love to do it with him because when Francis would bring somebody else in, and begin to talk about the film, virtually every time he told the story, the same story, let's say half a dozen times, you know, over the period of several months, from beginning to end, you know, he goes through the whole story with somebody. He always told it differently. Oh, okay. I was flabbergasted by that, because you think he would be finding things that work and how to say it and, you know, keep honing down to it, but he didn't do it. He always brought in fresh takes, the thing I was going to tell you about was after all of these films and, and we were screening the old Dracula movies, what we might use and what we right. were inspired by. And I said, Francis, I can't help feeling that worldwide audiences are really tired of the same of thing, seeing these the same old, you know, murky rooms, the same candelabras. And he said, what are you getting at? And I said, what do you think about moving it up into the 1930s in the deco era? I'll design clothing that's still rooted in turn of the century, but has this modern quality to it. I'll make it up. I'll make up the architecture, <laughs> the clothing, that's the hairdos. You know, I'll make up this whole new world, but it'll be they'll be in cars instead of horse-drawn coaches and wagons. I can see Dracula walking up. We'll take away all this, all this shadowy you know, dark, gloomy. We've seen it 150 times. There isn't any more to do with this. I said, let's put him in a marble castle. Mar White marble, stainless steel. I said, can't you see Dracula walking up this marble staircase and on the walls, beautiful photographic blow-ups of the most exquisite women that he's known <laughs> through the ages. <laughs> 
Francis would pick up on this idea and he'd elaborate on it. And then I'd pick up an idea that he had and I'd elaborate on that. We'd, we'd spend days just brainstorming what Dracula could be. But we came close. We really came close to moving it up into the 30s. He loved that idea. I think the screenwriter convinced him you know, to do the, the Bram Stoker version. So now, why did Preview end in 1996? I had done so much, almost 100 issues, and I had covered the same actors, the same directors, the same screenwriters, the same musicians, doing the same kind of material so often already that there wasn't anywhere else to go. I became a human Xerox machine. I could not live my life that way. I saw something else happening, too. The age of the magazine, the dominance yeah. of magazines internet kind of destroyed that have been deeply mitigated at that time by the internet and i saw what was coming you know five ten years down the line when you could get anything on the internet seconds after it happened instead of a month after it happened in magazine production and distribution and shipping and you know it didn't work anymore because my concept was preview. You know how exciting movie previews are, coming attractions? Right. That was the concept of my magazine. I wanted to bring you, I wanted to show you what you're going to see, you know, next week, next month. Yeah, that's right. Internet, social media kind of takes that out. What's your feeling on the modern comics industry as essentially a conclusion of our interview? Not something I'm too deeply involved with, although I did a year's worth of variant covers, several of which were number one bestsellers. Yes, on that's the, right. Uh, on the diamond charts. And I've done a number of Superman variants, like on Superman one or action 1000. And I've got one coming up that you don't know about Detective One. Thousand, And I did, I think it was the only artist that made the cut on Action 1000, Detective 1000, and Captain America 800, all milestone books. Nice. So I'm still involved with the form, but I've got so many other concepts and ideas that and I'm interest, yeah. working on. And I think disposable income is at its highest that it's been in the last 12 years. And I think the timing is right now for me to develop and perhaps realize ideas and concepts that I put away over the last mm, 30, okay. 40 years right. because they were too good to give away to companies. That's exciting. I think I'm ready finally to be my own boss on those things. On those ideas. That's exciting. That's exciting to know that there is always some nice pioneering Starenko on the horizon because I think everyone's always curious about what you're going to do next. And I think everyone who tries to kind of figure you out, you know, they can't because you're this creative force, you're a real dynamo, and you're a man of your word, and you're a real unique individual. And I feel really lucky to know you and talk to you today. Thank you so much for doing this interview with us. From a heartfelt standpoint, thank you so much. Appreciate that very much. And with little luck, you and I will have another conversation when I have an array of material in front of you, and you're going to ask me how that happened. I am excited about that. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Jim. Take care, Alex. 